Would you uh, join with me in prayer, asking for God's grace for us? We're in need of a spirit to both um, really illuminate our minds to these truths, kind of waken us to some of the things perhaps you've already heard, and then give us the grace that we might live in light of what we have just heard. So pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this day. and uh, Father, I am uh, needy for you to move towards us with the heaviness of this word, uh, reminding uh, that it is you who are speaking to us, that you have ordained that, uh, that the word broken is a place of feeding and conviction and encouragement. And yet, Father, I, I pray too that the word would bring a sense of freshness and joy and satisfaction and hope uh, to your people, those who have run from you and those who are avoiding thinking upon you and these truths that will be laid out, I pray, Lord, that you would bring uh, a sense of, let, let truth be weighty for them. They must deal with these issues, that they ought not to leave this room without dealing with these issues. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, you know, all of us love stories. Um, I mean, stories are often even used in sermons when people are beginning to sleep. Stories, I've seen people just come to life through a story. Um, Makes me want to be a narrative preacher, you know, just preach stories. Uh, But stories are exciting, they're fun. They tend to follow this trajectory of generally there's there's kind of a situation that's, that's revealed, and then there's some point of tension or conflict that comes into the story. And, uh, and then there's a promise or a hope for some deliverance or redemption or transformation. And then, of course, it, it leads to something happy and better afterwards. So Disney's made just a, a slew of these things, right? So the Beauty and the Beast would be one example where he's a prince, and, and things are going along fine. Tension enters this which or lady curses him, and all of a sudden he's made into a beast now, and uh, his life is ruined, but there's a hope that if he can find true love at a certain time, that his life will be changed and transformed, and of course he does, and the tension of the story builds up. Will he find it? And he finds it, and then life has changed, and it's better. Think about it. The Christmas Carol, same way. Scrooge, life begins. He's doing great. Greed enters in, love for money, and then boom, it's ruining his life. He's going to die. And then spirits of Christmas come and boom, change him, and then all of a sudden life, life is different for him. So, you know, the, the Grinch stole Christmas, the same story. That's not true, by the way, but it's a story that we enjoy. Um, so the Bible, and, and, and I used to think these things were kind of syrupy and sappy in the way they always ended up well. But, you know, I've come to understand, and maybe it's age and wisdom or some relationship between the two, that that we do crave for that. I I mean, we know life isn't the way it's supposed to be. We know life is a struggle. We want change. I mean, we do love stories of transformation. We love the idea of redemption. We love change leading to something better. That's what we want. I mean, that's what all of us want. Every one of us in this room here, we are struggling in some degree or some challenge, and and we, we want God to make it better. We want something better on the end, on the other end. And I think the Bible really gives us a story. You know, when you think about the Bible, it really is just one story is really what it is. 
it's one big story. Where God, and it's in the same kind of parts. You know, here's this, in the beginning, God creates all things. It's good, it's glorious, it's right. And then, and then everything's glorious, and then tragedy enters, right? There's this rebellion of man in the Bible. And it makes all creation go sideways. Tragedy enters in, loss, darkness, despair. But there's a promise that, that God gives, that he says, I'm going to make it right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it back to its original glory. And then you have the, just this history of despair, and then you have the coming of a champion, of a deliverer, who then brings about the change that begins to take root. And, and then it leads to something greater in the end. That's really what the Bible's about. It's just one story of God creating and, and man falling and God redeeming and restoring, building back to what he originally had. That's really the one story of the Bible. And what we want to do over Advent is something a little different in these four weeks. We want to help you see how Christmas fits into that story. And so we're going to preach more thematically over these next number of weeks. And what I mean by that is we'll be using scriptures and preaching from scripture. uh, But we're going to be looking at, at a higher level, more of an aerial view of how God works in his creation. How does the coming of Jesus fit into this greater story. And we'll be looking at it in four parts. And so we're going to begin in the beginning. If you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, we're going to, I'm just going to read the first three verses, and then we're going to move in Genesis. I'll move to 26 to 28, read a couple verses in 2, chapter 2, and I'll hit Psalm uh, 33 later in the, towards the end of the sermon. So turn with me to Genesis 1, in the beginning. That's what the word means. First book of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. 26, we see the creation of man. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing. It moves on the earth. And in 2, 1 and 2, he says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work. That he had done. So we're going to look at creation just today, very, very briefly. So it's in the beginning, we find in the beginning God. So before anything was, God is. This pre-existing God is existing right here among nothing. It's just him, this triune God. It says, in the beginning God created. What we find here is that God initiates creation. He didn't have to create. He didn't need the company. He didn't need the friendship. He chose to create his sovereign will move to create. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It means that God has created out of nothing. That we need raw materials. He need nothing to create. And then it says, verse 3, it says, and God said, let there be light. That God created with his word. Executive order. Divine fiat. He just spoke. And it came to be, to show his power and his glory, to show the effortlessness of creation. 
you know, you have a building going up here. On the next property, they're building a school. And uh, so as I go walk around the parking lot praying, I'm always amazed at how slow things seem to progress. The crane picks up one beam and the beam gets lifted up. And they are creating something in a way. But it's slow. It seems so elementary. And God just speaks in beauty, complexity, power is just formed with his breath. Amazing when you think about that. And, and so in, in, in Genesis chapter 1, you kind of have this cosmic overview of creation. Genesis 2, you have a little more detail about the creation of man and, and the creation of marriage. But, but in Genesis 2, it kind of shows us that it centers on man, that man and woman is his pinnacle of creation. It, we're not God, but we're like God. It, really, two things that show us that man and woman are God's pinnacle. Number one, we're created with a unique nature like God, that, that we have uh, certain capabilities, unlike all creation, to reason, to think, to deliberate. We have certain attributes, compassion, holiness, that, that no other creation has. But it's not just the nature that we've been made that's unique, but our position in this creation is unique. That we're called, again, we're like God here. We can't create out of nothing, but we can create with something, thereby mirroring. In fact, the two, the two instructions that God gives to Adam is to serve and to protect. And to serve in this garden, when God created man and woman to serve in the garden, he's really saying, develop the garden. Bring the garden to its full potential. We're involved with God under the direction of God to bring all of his creation to its fullest potential. But we're also to protect the garden, that is to prohibit anything from uh, destroying its beauty or perfection. And so this is quite a privilege that we see in these first chapters in Genesis, that we have been created unique, uniquely like him, and uniquely to display and to live as he lives. And so with these privileges come responsibilities. And so we find in these chapters that God commands Adam, to obey, to submit, to be a steward under his leadership. And with these commands to obey come blessings and warnings. Warnings that if we don't obey, there are dire consequences. And then, of course, it winds up with this idea that God declares, God makes a moral judgment, and he says everything is very good. And then he rests. He doesn't rest, of course, because he's tired, but he rests to set for us a paradigm that we rest, that we enjoy God and all that God has made. So that's kind of creation. Now, when you look at the, this is the beginning of the story. So God makes us, world makes us, in it, vice regents over it. It's all great and glorious. But where's the rest? I mean, I mean, why don't we have this? Why aren't we experiencing this? Obviously, something has gone awry, and, and this is where the story kind of goes sideways. So, so God creates all these things, but clearly this place is, is not a shadow of what it was. It's marred. It's affected. It's and so what happened? Well, Genesis 3 begins to show us the story of how things went awry. This is the tension in the story. This is the conflict. This is the struggle. So in this creation, man and woman were given God's word and, and they were called to uh, live for his glory. What a privilege that would have been to be created specially by God, to serve as his vice regents, to serve him, to glorify him, to love him. And of course, we know the story in Genesis chapter 3, they chose not to. 
They chose rather than receive the gracious offer of God to serve him, they wanted to be served. And so they rebelled. They turned. They wanted to be gods themselves. Now, of course, God had warned them. And so God brought about that warning in terms of a judgment. And he judges the serpent. He judges the woman, particularly in pains of childbirth. And he judges the man. He really judges the earth, the workplace of man. And with that judgment comes these implications that we're still living through. So, I mean, you see right in Genesis 4, uh, there's battle, Cain kills Abel out of envy and strife. It doesn't really get better, right? It kind of, as the world fills, so does evil fill the world. So when God speaks again, now he speaks a word of judgment in the flood. It's kind of, in a way, like a washing away of sin. And, but God's mercy is in there because he establishes this covenant with Noah. Not unlike the covenant with Adam. He says, be fruitful and multiply, reminding us of it. God's still at work. He's still creating. Obviously, the washing away of all these sinful people doesn't remove the curse, though, that was brought about. Because we see in 7 and 8, as the earth begins to repopulate, that external cleansing did nothing to the internal problem. That curse and judgment. And so you find in Genesis 11 kind of another high watermark where man again is reaching for God, building that tower. We're going to be like God. They couldn't re-enter the garden, but they're going to go upward to God to be like God. And of course, God then speaks again. And he speaks another word of judgment. He scatters these people and he confuses their language. But the mercy is there in that he doesn't consume them. He's honoring the promise that he had given earlier in chapter 3, that a champion would come and would crush the head of the serpent. So God's still working with his people. Then you go to Genesis 12, a, a critical chapter in the scriptures. God doesn't create a new world, but he does create a new man, Abram to Abraham. And, and what he does is he makes another covenant with Abraham, again showing mercy, continuing his promise. And so he calls Abraham and makes him, uh, is going to make him the head of a new family, and he's going to give him a land. And what's interesting about the land is it's flowing with milk and honey, reminding us again of Genesis, reminding us again that God is not finished. Of course, as you continue to read through the Old Testament, you see just a, a litany of disobedience and just a track record of destruction. God sends kings and prophets God disciplines him, sends him into exile. He brings him back. What a remarkable thing I was sharing with a friend last night. For God to raise up Cyrus to write the check to build the temple and repopulate the land is mind-bending when you think about, about, about the power of God. And so as you go through this, we get all the way to Malachi, the last book, and what happens? We just studied the book, right? It all is the same. Failure. Judgment is the last sentence in that book. And then God goes silent. So now we're really tense in this story. God's created everything. It's great. It's lovely. It's wonderful. Man ruins it. Boom, here we are. This long history of failure and disobedience, wickedness, failure to submit to God. What's he going to do? Is God going to let it go? Is he going to recover it? Is he going to restore it? How's he going to do it? So we're at this point of tension. So when you get to the New Testament, you find that God speaks again. But God speaks differently now. He speaks in his son. What's interesting in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, listen to what he says. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, there's a tremendous amount just in these few verses. But what I I want to draw your attention to is, doesn't it sound like Genesis 1? Do you think John is not saying, I want you to understand the coming of Christ as creation again? In the beginning, light and darkness, same themes are there. That God is doing a work through the bringing of the Son to recreate that which has fallen. This is amazing that Jesus Christ is being seen, and you see in the 14th verse that this word that I just read has become flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we beheld his glory and his grace and his truth. And so God, this is the answer that Christmas is. This is what Christmas is. It's fitting into the story that God is now going to send the champion. He's now going to send the son. And in his life and death and resurrection, Jesus Christ is going to institute a new age, a new era. He's going to bring about a new creation. He's going to make all things new. This is why the angels are singing for joy over the world. This is why shepherds are rejoicing, why wise men are worshiping, and why wicked kings are trembling. Because now one has come to undo the curse, to undo the darkness. This is the story of Christmas. We give gifts, and it's fun, and it's a time of holiday cheer, but there's so much more going on here. This is God reclaiming his kingdom, recreating things. We see it in the ministry of Christ. The blind see, the dead are raised, the lame walk, the lost are found. He is recreating people. He is making new lost men and women. Profound. People are turning from their sin. Repentance and faith in God Almighty through faith in Jesus Christ. This, wasn't ha- this is happening now because of the recreation of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel recreating. This is the story of Christmas. It's bringing a gospel, bringing a word through a son that's going to recreate us. Now the great thing is the story doesn't end here. And the story goes on as the gospel has gone forth. So has recreation. I'm a testimony to it. I was once blind, but now I see Christ. Those of you who have loved Christ and placed your faith in him, you have been recreated. You have been made new. Think about Paul saying, if any man be in Christ, he's what? A new creation. Why does Jesus say you must be born again? You must be rebirthed. You must be recreated And it's going to go on. And the power of the gospel is going to continue to spread. The story will go out to the ends of the earth. And then at one point in time, Jesus will come back and consummate all things and complete this whole new creative work of God through the gospel. And we see this, obviously, in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21. He says, then I saw a new heaven, a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Remember, it was that way in Genesis, before man was removed for his sin. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Creating. That's really the story of the Bible. It begins with creation. There is a fall from his gracious move in our lives. There is the redemption of the word of God, Jesus Christ, and there is recreation through the power of the gospel. That is the story of the Bible. So how do we live in light of that? I mean, how do we live in this age where we are in the midst of this recreating power of the gospel across the nations? Well, th- there's, there's so many things I'd like to say at this point, uh, but I just want to grab a few and have you think about them. And I really want you to dwell on what I'm asking you to consider. Number one, I think there's a thankfulness. The Christian, the one who has been recreated, I'll speak about the non-Christian in just a moment, but for the Christian, you're a thankful person. This is where we kind of draw in Psalm 33. You know, when you look at Psalm 33, which was really pre-Christmas, so, so we, if anybody, should have probably more joy because we've seen more of God's truth revealed to us. In, in Psalm 33, he says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Then in verse 6, he says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. for he's, Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. You know, it's interesting, in the psalm, five times the psalmist calls us to thank God, to praise God. He says, do it with a fervor. Shout with joy. Shout. And I imagine when we see him, we will be shouting. It's, you know, we're a little embarrassed and skittish in here. It doesn't seem the appropriate thing to do in crowds like this, but, but there will be shouting, he is saying. There's also not just the fervor, but the newness. He says, sing new songs. He's really giving us license to keep writing music. He's also talking about doing worship with excellence, right? Play skillfully. Don't just play, but play skillfully. And the reason that we're called to be so thankful is creation. He says, for by the word of the Lord, the earth was created. By the breath of his mouth, all things were made. So, so, I mean, there's an excitement. There's a joy. There's a thankfulness. Even though this world is marred, even though this world is still bearing the effects of the curse, we can see his power and glory in this. You can still go outside. As I was walking around seeing the wispy clouds, it's just amazing when you take the time and stop and look up and enjoy all that God has made. I mean, for the Christian, we're called to do it. Jesus commanded us. He said, consider the birds of the air, the lilies of the field. I mean, the Lord himself gives us this command to consider these things, to think about them, because it lifts your soul up. It prepares you to live for the new creation. You know, even Charles Spurgeon. So Charles Spurgeon is this great pastor, right, in England, and the, uh, preached the bulk of his ministry in London in the 19th century. Uh, he wrote a book uh, for ministers, 
And uh, one of the chapters in this book is called The Fainting Fits of the Minister, the struggles that ministers have in ministry. And um, in this book, uh, Spurgeon speaks to the nature of how creation is given by God to us to actually dispel despair, that many of us are struggling. And creation is a gift of God to us while living in yet the darkness of this world. Before the full creation has taken root, the creation has been given to us as a gift of God to help us lift our eyes to his glory and to be thankful in the midst of trouble. Here's what he says. He was a man uh, that struggled deeply with depression and despondency. He says, let a man be naturally as blithe as a bird. He will hardly be able to bear up year after year against such suicidal process. That's his take on the pastoral ministry. (laughs) He will make his study a prison in his books, the warders of a goal or a jail, while nature lies outside his window calling him to health and beckoning him to joy. He who forgets the humming of the bees among the heather, the cooing of the wood pigeons in the forest, the song of birds in the woods, the rippling of rills among the rushes, and the sighing of the wind among the pines, needs not wonder if his heart forgets to sing and his soul grows heavy. A day's breathing of fresh air upon the hills, or a few hours ramble in the beech woods would sweep the cobwebs out of the brain of scores of toiling ministers who are now but half alive. A mouthful of sea air or a stiff wind, in, a stiff walk in the wind's face would not give grace to the soul, but it would yield oxygen to the body, which is next best. Heaviest the heart is in a heavy air. Every wind that rises blows away despair. So he's just saying creation has been given for us to be thankful, to be joyful, even though marred, even though it's going to be replaced and and renewed and it will be glorious and we cannot even imagine it. Right now, that which is marred is for us to remind us of his glory. But I would say, secondly, uh, that creation, living in this time between the recreating power of the gospel and the full consummation, is we are living for God's glory. I mean, all of creation is for God's glory. Remember the relationship, folks. He's the creator, we're the creature. And we have been created out of nothing for his glory. All of creation is for his glory. That means you. That means your lives have purpose and meaning and value. It is not in the careers you have. It is not in the success that you've enjoyed. It's not in the financial security you have. It's not even in the sweet relationships that you enjoy. That you and I exist for the glory of God. He has created us for his glory. And when you think about living for the one who has spoken all things into existence, spending all my life and focusing all my energies on a career seem paltry at best. It's not that we don't want to work hard and we work for the glory of God but that's just it we work for his glory and not for our own we exist for his glory you have got to remind yourself everything in this world is trying to move you into a pure material position living temporally in this life everything is in this life everything is within your grasp if you just try hard enough and it blinds us to the reality of your true purpose for living and here's the reality you will never be satisfied You have been created for more. 
You've been created for God. Even as Larry prayed, that quote from Augustine, your hearts will never find rest until it finds rest in God. And, and then thirdly, I would say creation. We ought to recognize our ongoing need for God. I mean, think about how God created. He, he created this world for you and I to be needy. He created this world with seed-bearing plants and fruit-laden trees just to remind us of our need for his sovereign providence in our lives every day. I mean, if all the rains shut up, we're gone. Sun stops shining, we're gone. You and I live at the end, the very thin string held by God. We need his ongoing providence. God is actually glorified in our recognition of our absolute dependence upon him. We need him. It says in Hebrews, it says in Peter about his word upholding all things in Colossians 1.17, that the very word of God, even as Andrew read from Psalm 104, the natural laws that we've come to appreciate and just consider, that's just what happens, his word is sustaining those natural laws. His word is causing those things to happen. Just because natural laws exist doesn't mean that God is not making them fully operational. I mean, there is a call. We are to be needed. I love children. They are absolutely, they're unbashful about needing things. They don't, they don't worry about what you think of them. They don't consider. They just see you've got what they need. They want it. They need it. Ought we perhaps to be children like that again with God? Do we not need him? I mean, do you not need God? Does he not give you breath? When you laid your head down last night, did you guarantee yourself to get up? Is it not the power of God giving you life? <coughs> but not only that, living in this age between these creations, I would say we're called to be humble at a minimum. He created all things by his word. I mean, all things by his word out of nothing. It strips us of arrogance, does it not? I mean, what have you received? That, what do you have that you haven't received? And why do you boast as though you did not receive it? I mean, for me, I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, but I've worked hard at this job. But isn't it God at work within me, giving me the energy and the strength to do it? I mean, doesn't it just, doesn't it just rip pride away from us? I mean, isn't the Christian called to be just humbly dependent upon God? I mean, he created all things out of nothing by his word, including you. He owns you. You're his. You don't own yourself. You're not a self-made man. You're not a self-made woman. God has made you. And, and then an, another thing I was, I was dwelling on with thinking about living between the creations, are we not thankful for his sovereign mercy in calling us to know himself? I mean, I mean, let me draw a connection that may not be as clear. So God, by his word, creates all things out of nothing. And that's the material universe. But doesn't he do that with salvation? Isn't, isn't his creation a picture of our salvation? Did he, not, did he not use the power of his word in the gospel to speak to us so that in our darkness we might be brought to light and to see him for who he is? Isn't creation out of nothing by the word not exactly a picture of salvation, his sovereign mercy in calling us? This is kind of the idea Paul has in 2 Corinthians 4. He says this, he says, for God said, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, 
has shown into our hearts to give the light. Listen to the nuances back to Genesis. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We're so tempted to think that, well, we came to God. And, well, I mean, I thought through all these different religions, and I just think Christianity is the best. I made a move to God. And yet, the darkness of our hearts, there is nothing there. There's nothing worthy in us. There's nothing worthy of being saved, save God's absolute unbridled mercy when he shines the light of the gospel into our hearts. So creation out of nothing with this earth is to ready us to see that salvation is creation out of nothing other than him speaking the word. See, the word of God is always powerful. The word of God doesn't create potentials, but actualities. Right? When God spoke, things happened. When Jesus spoke, things happened. When he called for us Lazarus, he, he responded. He was dead as a doornail, but he responded. You know, some of the old Puritan writers would say that if he didn't name Lazarus, the whole place would have emptied out. That's the power of God's word. When he spoke to the young girl, rise and get up, what did she do? She rose and got up. The power of God's word. That's how he saves. The power of the gospel. He made us alive. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, but God, in Ephesians 2, 4, probably the two greatest words, but God, while we're dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive in Christ by the power of his word. So are we not thankful when we're living in between these creations, while we're waiting for the full consummation of all things to celebrate this meal with Christ, we wait excitedly, thankful. God, you have woken my soul to you. We're always thankful for that sovereign move of grace in our lives. And then last, I would also say this, that living in between these times, that we are to be students of the word. God has chosen to relate to his creation by his word. Think about it. He's, instru- he's caused all things to be through his word. He instructed Adam and Eve, perfect creation. They still needed the word of God to live. He relates. He tells us how to order our relationships based upon his word. That God's word, that God's word creates, it blesses, it, it brings curses and judgment. It's all through his word. And I think in this day and age, many of us consider the word to be uh, an important part of our life, but not central or primary to it. And yet, if God has created all things by his word, he's saved us by his word, he's instructed us by his word, he's revealed his glory by his word, and we're not students of the word, then, then I'm wondering where we, f- where we get the logic of that. I mean, I know I've talked to many folks, and I know you've, you have a short devotional that you enjoy. Um, you listen to Christian radio. Folks, there is, there is no supplanting the need for us, each one of us, as students of God to study his word. He has chosen to relate to us through the word. And by God's grace, we have the word and scriptures. And so we're to be students of it. We're not just to be kind of walking along the salad bar like this, I don't like this. It's to be studying, loving his word, to to be pursuing it, uh, both by ourselves in private devotions, but also together in the community of faith where we're studying the word together. Don't want to be a legalist, but I think sometimes I fear being a legalist, and I actually slide towards license. 
I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to slide towards license because I'm afraid that I'm going to be guilty of legalism. But I'll say this to you. If God has done everything through his word, why aren't we students of it? So I would just encourage you. Radio will never do it. Christian radio will never feed you like the word of God. The testimonies are wonderful. The music may be marginal. The announcing is deplorable. But you need the word. You need to be in it. Folks, I I just want to ask you to recommit. You may have failed this past week, this past month, this past year. You may have started out a reading plan last January, and you made it to mid-January, and you've just stopped. I'm just encouraging you that God has chosen to relate to us. And if we're going to know him, if we're going to prepare ourselves to see it, we cannot do it apart from the word. Even the community of faith is insufficient. It has to be with the word. Now, now for the non-Christian here, uh, I would just ask you to consider these things, to consider creation. Uh, many, I think, in our culture will say, well, it's okay for you to believe in God, and that's great. I love it. I love you believing in God, but, but that's, he's not for me. It's not my thing. It may work for you, but it doesn't work for me. Well, I just remind you, this doesn't give us that option. If this is true, if God has created all things, then you are his as well. Th- that he commands your submission. That he commands you to believe in him. That your life hangs as he gives life. It hangs on that. And so if you're a non-Christian here and you have questions about this, I would love, and elders of this church would love to speak with you about this. But God has placed you, even as a non-Christian, in the theater of his glory. And you have to deal with that. How did I get here? What am I doing here? What's my purpose? And I would love to chat with you further about that. So let's take a minute now. Let me just pray for us before we celebrate communion. Father, thank you uh, that you have spoken to us no longer to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days uh, in your Son, whom you've appointed heir of all things and through whom you've created the world. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, Thank you for Christmas reminding us of the incredible power of the gospel recreating a people to live with you forever. That you are now making all things new. Father, give us us hearts to be passionate about your word, to be passionate about the Son, to be longing for that day. Father, may we not be satisfied with the gifts that you've given us today, but may they just lead us to the greatest gift you've given us in Christ. Father, may we have grace to live for that day. Father, give us grace to be radical, radical lovers of your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.